Good afternoon, everybody. And welcome to this, the second of our summer schedule of public lectures. Tonight's lecture is sponsored by Bob Mechanic of Sherwin Beach Press, and we're very pleased to have his sponsorship today. If you look up Tim Barrett on the web, you'll quickly find his picture and the caption, Timothy Barrett, papermaker, born 1862, <laughs> died 1935. Let the record show that Tim Barrett is very much alive and a great force for good in our community. Tim earned his BA from Antioch College before working for two years at Twin Rocker Handmade Paper, which, as many of you will know, is the best in the business. He then spent two years on a Fulbright Fellowship studying papermaking in Japan, and has spent many years thereafter researching early European handmade papers. His work has been funded by the NEA, the Crest Foundation, the Institute for Museum and Library Services, and in 2009, a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. In typical fashion, he joined the University of Iowa Center for the Book as its paper specialist in 1986 and ended up becoming its director. In 2012, he was profiled in the New York Times Magazine. The article was entitled, Can a Papermaker Help to Save Civilization? The answer was yes. Well done. Two days before the Times profile was published, the National Archives unveiled a newly restored and encased Magna Carta. It was from 1297. The document rests on cotton paper made by Tim and his colleagues at the Iowa Paper Research and Production Facility. Remarkably, that wasn't the first time that the National Archives had called on his expertise. In 1999, the National Archives commissioned Tim and his team to fabricate soft, unbleached, acid-free paper on which to lay the parchment originals of the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence. This was the same paper that was used for the Magna Carta project. Tim is also known in the scholarly community for his publications. His Japanese papermaking traditions, tools, and techniques of 1983 is the standard work in English, the must-read text for all who would enter that domain. Sampling of his articles includes enzymatic pretreatment during 15th to 18th century paper making in Europe, non destructive analysis of 14th to 19th century European handmade papers, and XRF analysis of historical paper in open books. 
his website, Paper Through Time, is really worth seeing. And his video on chancery papermaking has been viewed 23,000 times. Tim's current research is focused on the non-destructive analysis of European paper made between the 14th and 19th centuries, with a special emphasis on the role of gelatin in paper stability. The artisanal research techniques that Tim employs give distinctive qualities to his intellectual work, even as Tim's scholarship is always alive to the technical aspects of paper. So too is there invariably a pervasive aesthetic sensibility, akin perhaps to what Hans-Georg Gadamer called the beauty of inflections that informs Tim's work and helps it to exhibit the deep integrity for which his scholarly contribution is justifiably famous. Please join me in welcoming Tim Barrett. Thanks very much, Michael. I'm honored by your invitation. I'm also very much honored by the fact all of you have come here this afternoon. At the age of 25, I was very lucky to travel to Japan under a Fulbright Fellowship, and I managed to talk them into a renewal <laughs> while I was there. You don't usually get two Fulbrights in a row, but I said, I just spent all this time getting to know these guys. You can't send me home now. Uh, it was an amazing time. I traveled all around the country investigating tool making and fiber production. A wide range of mentors took time with me and told me about their craft and its intricacies. I had gone there particularly intrigued with certain aesthetic properties in Japanese handmade paper. They have, when well-made, a certain kind of luster that doesn't come from having been polished or shined. It's in the fiber itself. And the best of the sheets have this curious combination of softness and crispness. How can a piece of paper be soft and crisp at the same time? And yet, there it is. And I learned, after spending time with these people, that it was all very much connected with the materials and the way those materials were prepared. This is Kozo, Japanese paper mulberry, late in the summer. In the fall, the trees are harvested and cut to an even length where they're taken out to be steamed and stripped from the inner wood. The bark, the white inner bark is then hung up to dry, and later, when more time is available and a given batch of paper is to be made, uh, the bark is taken out of storage and soaked and stream bleached and made into sheets. And I told the class earlier today, I never got tired of walking into these workshops. I never got tired of seeing them stack these sheets one on top of the next. <laughs> That's one of the main reasons I, I asked for a Fulbright. <laughs> I gotta go find out how they can stack these up one on top of the next, press them together, and then get them to come apart. It is amazing. 
but it has very much to do with the integrity of the individual sheet as it's made and the length of the fiber that's used in the Japanese paper making process. These damp sheets then were brushed on boards to dry in the sun. So this experience in Japan showed me that a close analysis of the materials and, and techniques used to prepare the materials can lead you to some fascinating aesthetic answers to questions. So when I came back to America and found myself completely enthralled with 15th century Italian and German papers, I naturally thought, well, geez, maybe I can do something similar. Now, a lot of my peers in the field said, Tim, you know, you're, you're just kind of hung up on these, these 15th century papers. There's nothing that different from high-quality handmade paper produced today. But when I talked to conservators, they would tell me, oh, 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 we wash these things occasionally, we handle them, they are completely different. And I was, again, fascinated with the fact these papers look like they've been made yesterday, were supple, pliant, and yet strong, and they had a kind of integrity and character that I just didn't see in modern handmade papers. And I wanted to wanted to find out why, but I ran into a brick wall because even though we had very detailed 18th century French papermaking manuals, there was little to nothing that had come to light in the archives. And furthermore, I didn't have the language skills to, to read or translate anything that might have been in the archives. And then I discovered the work of the William Barrow Laboratory. If you're not already familiar with this 60-page report, Permanence and Durability of the book, Roman Numeral Severin, it's, uh, it's well worth a read. Barrow and his library colleagues were intrigued with how it was that they had fairly recently made papers in their collections that were in pretty terrible shape. And papers that were hundreds of years older that were in very good condition. It was known, it was understood at the time that acidity was very important, but Barrow analyzed 1,500 historical papers and uh, plotted the results. And this is one of the, the plots that resulted from this research. Indeed, the early sheets on the left were neutral or slightly alkaline, and the paper became more acidic over the centuries. You can go to Hobby Lobby now or an art store and buy paper and it's advertised as being acid-free. A lot of that goes back to this work by Barrow and other researchers. Now this plot has become symbolic to me of the whole field of material book studies. The point is that when the archives are lacking, when your historical figure that you admire and, and love so much didn't keep any correspondence, when the printer you are trying to understand better kept no business records, then the books will be waiting. The binding, the paper, the typography, 
They're like Ali Baba's cavern, and we're, we have the delightful job of trying to figure out how to say open sesame. So how did I open sesame? Well, what was intriguing about this plot is that Barrow was totally wrapped up in this end of the plot. He was trying to come up with a formula for making permanent and durable machine-made paper because he said it's just nuts for us to keep making machine-made, modern machine-made paper that's going to fall apart in 50 years. I looked at the same plot and I thought, well, gee willikers, man, how come you didn't go back another century? That's when the really great stuff was made. The answer is that all of his tests were destructive. These 1,500 books were broken books, deaccession books. So I knew that if I was going to be able to do this, and this became a real career dream for me, I was going to need to develop non-destructive analysis techniques so that I could convince a rare book librarian to let me into his or her collection. And I was very lucky to be able to work with colleagues at the National Archives, Getty Conservation Institute, who came up with an X-ray fluorescence technique that would tell us about the calcium, potassium, sulfur, and iron concentration in paper. A different technique, near-infrared light technique, could tell us about paper color and gelatin concentration. So here's how this broke out. I mean, I was very, very much inspired by Barrow. So we analyzed 1,500 samples, but you can see that our red bars refer to our specimen pool. We were really, I was really obsessed with the 14th century papers. Uh, and Barrow had very little, very few sheets even in the 16th century and lots of rotten paper from the 19th and 20th century which I was not interested in. So you can see this is just the inverse. Barrett and Barrow are completely different. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the research results. As Michael mentioned, you can search paper through time uh, and see many, many plots. I am going to show you some of the more important ones, however. This one for gelatin. And in all of these plots, you want to pay special attention to the year 1500. Now, this cluster, this bee swarm here of data points is uh, symbolic mainly of Barrett's fascination with this period. In other words, we went to a lot of trouble to make sure we had books from these earlier dates. Uh, but nonetheless, if you removed half of these, you can still see that there's a definite trend. There was a lot more gelatin in papers made before 1500. Likewise, there was more calcium sheets made before 1500. When we checked the thickness of the paper, it was thicker whether we measured one sheet or a group of 10 sheets together. And when we checked the color of the paper, now I should mention that on this scale on the left here, zero refers to white, minus 40 to black, so these 15th century sheets are much lighter in color than papers made in subsequent centuries until we get to around 1800 when chlorine bleach was invented. Now, Joe Lang, the statistician on this project, he took all the data that we provided him and generated these plots, and he called me up and he said, listen, Tim, I, either there's something wrong with my statistics or your instrumentation, or you better have a good explanation for why you've used three different 
analytical techniques, and they all show something significantly different prior to 1500. You got any idea why that would, would be? And I said, well, yeah, I, I, think I, I think I know. This is Gutenberg, obviously. Gutenberg and the other early printers were by their type designs, their hand-rubricated letters, attempting to make convincing imitation hand-copied manuscript books because those were the only reference point for what a book was or should be at that moment in time. And I believe that the papermakers were trying to make paper that emulated parchment or vellum, the chosen preferred substrate for these really well-made hand-copied manuscript books. Now, if you make paper out of old linen or hempen rag, possibly cotton rag as well, what you get is likely to be very well formed, a beautiful piece of paper, but quite soft and tender. If you dip that sheet of paper into gelatin solution, it completely transforms into a very different animal. After the talk this evening, over at the reception, I'll have some paper samples laid out. You can actually see and feel this transition. Turns out one of the chosen raw materials for making gelatin size sizing paper was parchment clippings. You cut out that rectangle, what are you going to do with all those leftovers? Well, it makes great size for paper. And I'm pretty much convinced there was a real crossover between the parchment trade and the paper trade. Okay, well, what other evidence do we have that the papermakers of the period might have actually been trying to make a paper that emulated parchment? We could consider format, paper size, and shape. That's problematic because oftentimes, as you know, books were trimmed. If you don't have a book that includes the decal edges, which is pretty rare, it's a little hard to know exactly what you're dealing with. But we're lucky because there exists in Bologna, Italy, an inscription in limestone dated from 1398. The text at the top reads, these are the sizes of the molds of the community of Bologna corresponding to the sizes of paper noted, which must be manufactured in Bologna and the district and are indicated here below. Oh, thank you very much. That is very nice. Now, what's curious is if you divide the short dimension by the long dimension in each one of these, you come up with a ratio of 0.71. Where the heck is that coming from? You can make paper any size you want. It's all a question of how you build the mold. Why are, they, why, why are they doing this? Maybe, perhaps, because the Arab paper makers before them made papers in this configuration? Ah, very interesting. You don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to the detail but in this table, but on the left we have European sheets, and on the right, Islamic sheets with uh, short dimension divided by long dimension ratio, extremely close. Okay, fine. Europeans got it from the Arabs. Where did the Arabs get this, please? Well, it turns out to be the same ratio that you get from the short side divided by the long side dimension of a piece of skin taken from the bat of a goat, sheep, or calf. So I think there is evidence in the sheet format and in the gelatin and other 
data we've accumulated that in cannabula period papermakers were indeed up to trying to make a paper that was special and different. And it helps explain to me why it has such character and integrity. Now, I have a, we have an issue here. One is you can look at this plot. It's a confound. You can look at this plot and say, where exactly did all these specimens come from? This is gelatin. And if you plot this data in a different way by country, then it becomes evident that all of the 15th century sheets, for all practical purposes anyway, came from Germany and Italy. And a lot of the paper from the later dates came from England because they were analyzed at the University of Iowa where we happen to have a lot of books in English. So really, when you look at these chronological plots, you have to be careful because we're really looking at the difference between German and Italian paper compared to paper made in uh, other places. This is a problem with Barrow's plots as well. He was basically looking at European handmade papers and comparing them to rotten American machine-made paper. So what we can do is we can take the data and collapse it, forget about where it came from, and do something else. Let's take the 300 lightest colored sheets and compare them to the 300 worst, darkest colored sheets. Now it turns out that, in fact, even though there are exceptions, the darker colored papers tend to be weaker. Uh, and the lighter colors tend to be stronger. This is just a result of some destructive tests we did on 35 actual historical specimens. These are called ornament plots. They're very interesting. The, the, uh, the shape tells you something about how the data spreads out. So the blue line is mean, 75th percentile at the top of the gray area, 25th below. And the bulge here shows you that there was how many data points were in that area compared to down at the very darkest end of the scale here. Again, this is white to black. It also shows us that these 300 lightest colored sheets were very, very light in color. So if we do ornament plots then, with this data in this fashion, we see that the darkest sheets had less gelatin in them than the lightest colored sheets. The darkest sheets had less calcium in them than the lightest colored sheets, and the darkest ones, no surprise, had more iron in them. Now there's another confound, and this one is really serious. We look at this change in color, and one has to ask, Tim, what about storage condition, man? You know, everything printed during the incanabular period was valued even very early on. People did not put that stuff in grandpa's damp basement. And a lot of the other books, yep, maybe so. So what are we going to do about this? This is an issue. Luckily, during this research, we, found, we encountered 200 books, and you may have seen this before, where you're, you're going along and the paper is really pretty funky, and then all of a sudden there is a really nice looking piece of paper, or the other way around. really nice paper, and then a real dog. And you can look at the watermark of the laid surface, not necessarily the watermark proper, just the laden chain lines, and you can tell sometimes that it came, from, in fact, from the same mill. Sometimes it's a different piece of paper that came from a different lot. 
But if it came from the same mill, what in blazes would explain this? Kathy Baker, in her book From the Hand to the Machine, has an interesting explanation called Tuesday versus Saturday paper. Actually, it's Monday versus Saturday paper. And the, I, the notion is that on Monday morning, they prepared a fresh batch of gelatin size. And as the week went on, they used the same batch, but they added more and more alum to the gelatin solution to keep it from spoiling. So that by the time you got to Saturday, it was a pretty nasty batch of gelatin size. And therefore, you could have some pretty strange chemistry going on with some of the paper from the same mill. So the problem in, in analyzing these books is that you can't take all of the data from the, the dogs and average it and compare it to all of the paper, all of the good paper. You have to compare these two, one to the other, because you see, we don't, we don't know how they were stored, but we know these two pieces of paper were stored together in exactly the same conditions. This is how this kind of work needs to be done in the future. We have to first find books that have this going on. Now, obviously, we made sure we didn't have, we had books in original bindings. Anything that looked like it might have been combined with another text we didn't use. This is a bit of a, a, a breakout on the uh, distribution of books, so we had some fairly good spread and dates. Long story short, it turns out that indeed, the light-colored sheets tend to have more gelatin and more calcium in them than the dark-colored sheets. Now, occasionally, you would find that in the pair, oddly, the dark-colored sheet had more gelatin in it than the light-colored sheet. Well, why would that be? Well, maybe the dark-colored sheet also had a lot more iron in it than the light-colored sheet. So there's a dynamic here going on with different uh, different uh, components that are impacting the end quality of the sheet. Now, what's interesting to me about this is if you go to the trouble to use raw materials that come as close as possible to the old linen and hemp and rag, you see, we can't find old linen, hemp, and cotton rags that we know are free of chlorine bleach and free of synthetic fibers. We just can't. So we need to start with raw textile quality fiber and treat it in a way that was similar to the early processes. If we do this, and if we use elevated levels of gelatin and calcium, then we still don't get paper that has the same aesthetic quality as the early sheets. Well, if it's not the ingredients, what the heck could it be? And I've come around to the conclusion that it has to do with the fact these papers were made in a high production atmosphere to be a utilitarian commodity to be part of people's daily lives. And when you make paper that way, we're talking 2,000 sheets in a day, team of three people or more, then there are these little nicks and dings that happen, little, little accidents in the midst of well-executed, skillful uniformity that contribute to the character in the finished paper. And they speak of the presence of other human beings. This is why books matter to us so much. We know other folks have been there, the people who made the bloody thing, and a lot of readers.
So in other words, Tim, if you really want this kind of character in paper, you've got to figure out how to make 2,000 sheets in a day. Well, uh, I actually, we, so we put together a three-person team, and we figured out that we could make 150 or 200 sheets in a day. And I was satisfied, excuse me, 150, 200 sheets in an hour. I was satisfied because you work a 10-hour workday, it can be done if you have enough pulp and enough drying space. So one of my grad students, in fact, it turns out it's Mary Sullivan in this photograph. She says, she says to me one day, Tim, let's try. And I go, what? She goes, you know, 2,000 sheets. And I go, I go, no, 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 no. I, listen, and so I did the math, you know, and uh, she comes back to me a, a week later, and she's, come on, let's try. I said, Mary, I did the math, you know, I got to build a drying system, 800 running feet of drying rope, Eight, 80 pounds of fiber, it's going to take me a week to beat it and store it. She goes, Tim, I, I could tell, I'd lost the argument, you know, I could tell. <laughs> I could, I'd lost the argument a long time ago. So what I'm going to do now is show you the latest of three videos about chancery papermaking. The latest one, which was, this was a year ago, last summer. And I want you to bear with me here. We're going to exit the PowerPoint and go to this video. Start this. On June 10th, 2016, a team of 12 people working at the University of Iowa Center for the Book attempted to make 2,000 sheets of handmade paper in a 10-hour workday. An earlier attempt in 2014 yielded only 1,350 sheets, but this time we were successful. We made three changes during this new attempt. First, we switched from cotton rag half-stuff to cotton linter fiber for our raw material. Second, we beat the fiber to yield a fast-draining pulp with, for those familiar with the industry standard test, a corrected Canadian standard freeness between 400 and 450 milliliters. And third, we incorporated a set of 20 extra felts in addition to the 52 felts needed to make our regular stack or post of 50 sheets. This allowed the vat person and Kucher to begin work on the next post as soon as a new charge of pulp was mixed into the vat. To reach 2,000 sheets by the end of the day, we needed to form and press one post of 50 sheets and start another within 15 minutes. We reached 2,000 sheets at 9 hours and 15 minutes by having everyone continuously take turns at each of the vat positions. Everyone else packed pressed the sheets that had been separated from the felts, parted them, and hung them to dry in groups of four sheets. It is important to emphasize that during the history of the craft, the three-person team at the VAT was supported by eight or more additional people working in the background who sorted rags, beat the rags into pulp, hung the sheets to dry, and finished, counted, and packed the paper for market. The paper machine was invented around 1800. When making paper by hand between 1300 and 1800, a day's work varied considerably depending on the size, thickness, and quality of the sheets being made. Smaller, lightweight, poor quality grades, such as wrapping paper, could be made in quantities as high as 9,000 sheets in a day. 
very large, heavyweight, high-quality sheets for watercolor paper, for instance, might carry with it an expectation of as few as a thousand sheets in a day. Why attempt making 2,000 sheets in a day to begin with? Why bother? We had two reasons for trying. First, the most obvious perhaps, was simply to see if we could do it. In hand paper making craft today, 2,000 sheets in 10 hours is a lot. Was it possible, we wondered. Secondly, we wanted to see how making that much paper that fast would impact the characteristics of the finished paper. Modern handmade paper used in the conservation of rare books needs to have qualities similar to the historical sheets. If we employed production rates used to make paper as a utilitarian commodity, would we end up with sheets that exhibit an attractive tension between unavoidable marks or defects on one hand and skillfully executed uniformity on the other? Or would the paper automatically just be poor in quality? The answer to this question is confounded by the wide range of skills in our particular 12-person team. But by considering the better quality sheets made by the more skilled workers, we found many of the characteristics we see in well-made historical sheets that are both skillfully formed and couched, but also possess the various marks remaining from the hand paper-making process. More slowly made, more perfect sheets may eliminate any of the so-called defects but we question if they embody the spontaneity and authenticity we see in historical utilitarian papers. What we learned. Number one, with the right number of workers on a team, 1,500 or so sheets in a modern eight-hour workday are possible. Number two, attempts to replicate historical work routines provide real insights about historical production details that were never documented. Good examples are the necessary pulp drainage rate, or freeness, as well as the level of skill that was necessary to do the work. We realize fast draining pulp permits high production rates in a given amount of time, but it also increases the amount of skill required on the part of the vat person to shake and even the sheet in just a few seconds of time before the wet pulp solidifies on the mold surface. And number three, finally, experiments such as this greatly enhance the already high level of respect we have for the quantity and quality of paper routinely made by historical workers. The dried sheets made during this experiment were humidified, damp pressed, and then dry pressed to flatten them. As a final step, they were graded for thickness and quality, and the finished sheets were sold for use in letterpress printing and dummy text blocks in bookbinding models.
All right, I have a postscript I'd like to share with you. I would like to suggest that, crazy as it sounds, even those of us who are closest to the book and paper story may not fully appreciate how much they are part of us. Think about this a second. The first time we wrote the most important word in our language, our name, we scrawled it out on a piece of paper. The first time we expressed ourselves as an individual by making a work of art, we drew a picture on a piece of paper. Our own children's photographs on paper passport, the identity card that signifies who we are in the culture, grandpa's letters home from the war. The poem that always makes us weep and the piece of prose that always makes us proud to be human. All but on paper and in books and somehow for centuries we've taken it all for granted. Well, I propose that's all going to change. And those of us with a background in books and paper are soon going to become part of a new priesthood in popular culture and the academy. Oh, part of a new priesthood. That sounds pretty cool, Tim. When, pray tell, is that going to happen? <laughs> well, I can't tell you exactly when, but I can tell you how it's going to go down. In 1859, there was an extreme solar flare that resulted in aurora borealis in the Caribbean. Aurora borealis so bright that you could read a newspaper in a city. Telegraph lines in Europe and America either shut down or the telegraph operators found out they could send and receive messages without any power source at all. Some of them got shocked. People who are a lot smarter than I have looked into this. Lloyds of London commissioned a special report, and Lloyds of London has good reason to be a little concerned about this. And if something like that, it's called the Carrington event, named after an astronomer who was attending to sunspot activity at the time this happened. If something like that happens again, and they project since the Carrington event, since 18. Uh, 59, between 100 and 250 years, so we're in the window right now, it's going to toast transformers all across the planet. Goodbye, cloud. Goodbye, iPad. When that happens, a lot of people are going to come around and start to ask us questions about where paper came from, where books came from, <laughs> Yes, there's going to be a big run on yellow legal pads and pencils, but people are going to pay attention to us and to this whole story. So I want to conclude by saying that all of you in this room are very, very wise to be associated with Rare Book School <laughs> and to be attending a class this week. Thank you very much.